Yes, they'll be gone until Thursday. They're, um, yeah. It's Disneyland today. <laughs> or yesterday. One of those days. All right. We are in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verse 1. We are going to be getting into some actual teachings of Jesus tonight, which is going to be interesting. We're going to st start studying and looking at the parables. <clears throat> so, Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Now, remember last week um, we had this great discussion in Mark 3, talking about the new family of faith um, that Jesus has formed. We have here at the end of Mark chapter 3, Here, my bro here are my mother and my brothers, who are, for whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. So we have this new family of faith that Jesus has established and is establishing, and that will be worked out eventually to be the church. But right now it's composed of the disciples, and as we've seen from prophecies and other things, this family of faith is a group of people who have soft hearts, who are humble, and who are falling at the mercy of Jesus. They are not falling on their own religiousness to save them, which is going to play an important role as we begin to talk about parables. So Mark chapter 4, verse 1, again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Got to say, Jesus had to have been pretty loud to be able to speak from a boat on the ocean. And he was teaching them many things in parables. Okay, so Jesus begins to talk in parables. So we need to talk about what parables are, why Jesus transitioned to this form of teaching, and the significance of parables. Um, very important. This is the bulk of how Jesus teaches from this point forward, is in parables. Okay, so parables. As modern Christians, we have a tendency to make parables into these cute little stories that help us understand spiritual truths. Um, the line I was always told and I learned through my schooling and education was an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, which is not necessarily the whole picture. You could say that about Aesop's fables. You could say that about any number of stories, like an a, a illustration that a pastor uses. Parables are not merely illustrations. We have to get that out of our mind. They are not merely illustrations. Parables were used in the ancient world as teaching tools, as effective stories to communicate ideas. Where a lecture, like what I'm doing here, is something that communicates with your mind. That's what a lecture does, information. A sermon communicates mostly when you read, do verse by verse, and how they would have taught um, on, in synagogue, would have communicated with your mind, which is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But a parable is designed to communicate with your emotions. Parables are designed to communicate with your emotions and elicit an emotional response 
from the hearers. Okay? Um, so in that sense, parables aren't just a teaching tool. It's almost half of the entire teachings, where you have your intellect and your emotions being catered to with these different two different teaching styles. It's more like a teaching style than even a teaching tool, these, uh, these parables. So Jesus begins to teach with these emotion-based parables. And when I say emotional-based, most of the parables, when you read them, they are gut punches. They are... Um, they have an emotional response to them as opposed to merely an intellectual response. And we're going to see that as we look at the, the three, three and a half parables in Mark chapter 4. In regards to parables, we also have to remember that the main antagonist that Jesus is up against, at least in Mark, has been the religious leaders they didn't like what Jesus was up to and didn't agree with his message of healing and disobeying the laws. They wanted a message of power and conquering. They wanted, um, maybe they wanted an intellectual message. They wanted something that, that catered to them as opposed to catered to what God wanted to do. So parables were a way for Jesus to exclude certain audiences. And we're going to see that as, as he explains what the parables are for. He's going to actually say that exact thing. <clears throat> like I said, lots of other ancient teachers used parables. It wasn't just related to Jesus. It was kind of a way that people taught. Jesus' parables, though, um, are very different because they're not just illustrating talking points. Most of Jesus' parables are about what? A way to describe the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Which, what does that tell you about the kingdom of heaven? If parables are emotional teaching tools, emotional teachings, what does that tell you about the kingdom of heaven? It's not grounded in your intellect. It's grounded in the hearts and minds of believers, okay? Which is an important idea that Jesus, I think, is trying to communicate. This isn't some, the kingdom of heaven cannot be understood by words alone. It's easier to understand it with your heart, with your emotions. And this isn't, this isn't a new teaching, um, Jonathan Edwards, who is probably the most intellectual teacher of um, the church era, um, he taught that as Christians we are to develop almost like a sixth emotional sense to learn to understand and feel God. Um, and so we develop that as Christians and believers so we can understand that what, what God is doing and, what, and how to connect with him. Just like when you are new to a certain food type or wine or something like that, you have to develop that sense. It doesn't come naturally. So he taught this very thing. We have to develop our emotion, this emotional core in us and direct it towards God. His most famous work is called The Religious Affections, which is something in your emotions. So this isn't, this isn't something new. The kingdom of heaven is grounded in our emotions, in our gut, in our, in our feeling, in our, uh, 
in the core of who we are. And that's one of the things that Jesus is trying to reinforce that idea. This isn't something that we can reason out and figure out. You have to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, etc. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This isn't, this isn't weird that Jesus is doing that. The weird part is that they're full of power. I mean, that's, that's the unique part. They're, they're, they have power, and um, Jesus uses it as a, a, almost like a sparring technique to point out their flaws. Because when the, every parable that Jesus teaches... He teaches universal truth within the parable. Like, you plant a seed, and it grows. Nobody can deny that truth. You plant a seed, and it grows. If you throw a seed on a path, it's not going to grow. Because the soil is not... Everybody knows that. Nobody can deny it. They're undeniable, universal truths. That's what he's teaching. And he's using that, and he says, this is what it's like. So, he's, he's showing them the errors in their thinking and in their ideas by using these parables, by making them connect with the parable as opposed to him just outright forming a treatise against their thinking. That makes sense? So what Jesus could do on an intellectual level is Jesus could write out a speech or have a speech prepared to lay out exactly what's wrong with each of the Pharisees' teachings. And he does that in a couple points. He does that earlier when we talk about the healing on the Sabbath. He laid out exactly what was wrong with their teaching. But a more effective and powerful way is to show what's wrong with their teaching in a very real sense that everyone can understand. When Jesus was talking about the healing earlier, he, um, he cites an obscure law in Deuteronomy, which a lot of people would have understood, but most people wouldn't. The Pharisees would have, the scribes would have, um, but if he talks about seeds being thrown, everybody in the room or at the seaside could relate to that. Everyone can understand it. So he's using these parables as a way to communicate with the whole crowd and make the Pharisees effectively look really bad in front of the whole crowd without, making, without targeting them. Um, so he begins to speak in parables to show the failings of the Pharisees and the religious leaders' teachings. Um, more than that, he is using the parables as a litmus test, as it were, for the people to show where their hearts are. And the nice thing about a parable, <coughs> unlike some other forms of teaching, is when you hear a parable, you're able to gauge where you are on the track. And it doesn't show up as much with the parable of the sower, but we see it in some of his later parables, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is in a different book, of course, but what does Jesus say at the end? Who is your neighbor? That's what he asks at the end. Basically, he poses the question to them, which one are you? So it allows people to gauge for themselves where they're at spiritually and emotionally. And the parable of the sower kind of does that a little bit, um, but uh, it's a little different. But even still, it allows you to gauge, based on your emotional response, where you're at spiritually. <clears throat> now, the 
We talked about the Pharisees, it being a direct response. Um, The other reason Jesus began to teach in parables is he wants to limit his exposure. And this is the part that we can understand when we look at the entire book of Mark up to this point. Jesus has already been accused of disobeying Sabbath law and been accused of blasphemy. Okay, so Jesus is kind of in hot water with the religious leaders. So he wants to diffuse the situation. He does not want civil rebellion. That does, is not what he wants, which is probably what he would have been, Jesus' teaching could have led to. So he wants to cool the situation off, and so he begins to teach in parables. To, he begins to diffuse the aggressiveness of the people. It's not Jesus that was aggressive. It was the people that were following him and the religious leaders. So he wants to diffuse the situation, and he does it. He accomplishes that work. He wants, he, he wants the accusations against him to be limited. Um, and this is important because Jesus knows the plan, and he knows that the plan isn't ready. He's not ready to be put to death yet. That comes later. And as he gets into Jerusalem, his discussion of spiritual matters really starts to ramp up, and you see him kind of hitting a lot more, in, instead of doing kind of these parable things, he starts teaching on a much deeper level, which gets the Pharisees angrier and angrier, which eventually leads to his being put to death. So he wants to diffuse the situation. He wants to limit the amount of accusations that can be brought against him. Um, I talked about litmus test. So we have the litmus test of the parable against those who would cause harm to the kingdom of God and the family of faith. Now, what the parables do, and Jesus is going to explain this a little bit later, but ultimately what the parables are going to accomplish in the hearers is it's going to bring growth, peace, and hope to those who live and approach in humility, who approach ready to learn, which the picture of the disciples is what we get there. But to the person who's going to rely on their own righteousness, it's going to harden their hearts. And Jesus explains all this. This These aren't my words. These are Jesus' words. It's going to harden their hearts, which, again, harkens back to the Exodus, where the, the plagues on Egypt, they softened the hearts of those who were calling for freedom, and it hardened the hearts of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Very similar idea here. Jesus does not want pretenders in his family. He wants honesty, and he wants us to claim the mercy of God. And this parable idea is what a, is a good way to accomplish that. So that's kind of the basis of parables. They are powerful stories that accomplish a specific purpose. And that specific purpose is to get to the emotional core of what the kingdom of God is. In Mark chapter 4, we have... Three slash four, the fourth one isn't really a parable, but I kind of consider it to be kingdom of God parables. We have the parable of the sower, which is probably the most famous parable in the Bible. 
the parable of the seed that grows. We have the parable of the mustard seed. And then we have the, the fourth kind of parable. Uh, it's not really because it's really short and it's not really a story, but it's the, the parable of the lamp or the story of the lamp being hid under a basket or a bushel. That's where we get the, this little light of mine song from. Um, these parables, the three seed parables, kingdom of God parables, have many common themes. Uh, the first common theme is every one of them deals with seeds. All right? This is important because everyone in that culture, that was, it was an agrarian culture. They would have all understood what seeds were. They would have all understood the idea of a harvest. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, because it was um, a time of festival and feasting, that, that was, the whole calendar revolved around the harvest. So everything revolved around harvest time in terms, it, it, it was a lot like Christmas and Thanksgiving in our culture. Everything revolves around those two holidays. In those days, everything revolved around harvest time. So everyone would have understood the idea of seeds and sowing and growing. Um, every, each of these three parables involves the seeds growing. All three of them do. And each of these three parables have a sower figure. Now, the dangerous thing as Christians, what we are going to try to do is we are going to try to um, conflate these three parables. You understand what I'm saying? So we're going to say, if the seeds in parable one mean X, then they must mean X in parable two and three. But that's not true. They're going to mean, they, they might mean that, but we have to take each parable on its own because Jesus taught each of these parables at different times for different purposes. Now, they do have common themes, and there might be overlap in theme and the idea, but we have to be very careful. The most dangerous one is the third parable is about the mustard seed. Now, what's the other mustard seed idea in the New Testament? If you have faith like a mustard seed, that is not even in this parable. Faith is not a part of this at all. But as Christians, we, can, we have a tendency to apply that. Say, well, this must mean faith. This must, it's like, no, no, mustard seed is, means small. It has nothing to do with faith. It means small. So we have to be very careful to not conflate and mix up the parables. We can take themes because this is the Bible, they're going to have common themes, right? They're going to have common ideas, so we can take the themes, but we just, the figures in them, we have to be careful to not mix them up. Each item in each parable can have a different meaning, um, and we also have to consider them in the context of the entire book so far, what we've read so far. <coughs> Parables tend to get taught on a lot as individual chunks, and we're going to see it looks really interesting when you frame it into what we've read so far in terms of Jesus's discussions and conflicts with the Pharisees and religious leaders. So um, the other common theme is the theme of the kingdom of God. 
this falls in line with the mission of Jesus. Jesus' mission, remember, is to reveal the kingdom of God to the people of Israel. So this is an emotional way to reveal the kingdom of God and bring the true kingdom to fruition. The other theme I forgot to mention is the theme of bearing fruits. That's in all of them. All three have the theme of bearing fruit. But that even looks a little different. For instance, the seed in the first parable is the word of God. Jesus makes that clear. The seed in the third parable is Jesus himself. Slash the kingdom of God. Okay, the other big theme in all three of these parables is the concept of time. It describes the kingdom of God as being slow, moving, and taking its own time, going at its own pace, not at the pace of the sower, but at its own pace. This is interesting in light of the narrative. Everything in Mark thus far has been quick, moving quick. And Jesus slows it down by revealing that the kingdom is a slow moving. And really it's just the kingdom works on God's time, not on man's time. Jesus is patient and gentle and full of love and mercy when he's discussing these parables. As opposed to when he's talking with the Pharisees where he's quick and sharp and to the point. He's directed. This shows an interesting uh, principle that Jesus, if you're in the family, if you're going to fall on the mercy of God, he does not, he's not going to control you. He wants you to understand and work at your own pace. And that's what we see in the parables. That's a very strong theme, is that working at your own pace idea. Or at God's pace. All right, so let's get into the first parable. Again, he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time um, dissecting this chunk right here. Because Jesus actually gives an interpretation of this in the next paragraph. So we're just going to read it. And um, then we'll go over the meaning when Jesus gives the meaning. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, so one quick note about this, this thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and hundredfold. The typical yield of grain in the ancient world was tenfold. Okay, so this is already a miraculous thing. And the people would have known that, we would not have known that. Right? There's nothing, unless you've studied ancient agrarian. So the fact that Jesus is saying 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, that's miraculous. That's amazing. If you have a 100-fold crop, you are the richest man in Israel. 
It's like a thousand percent return on investment, basically. So we have this parable. Jesus speaks, and again, I'm going to talk about the meaning of it in just a minute. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Okay, so Jesus describes the reason for giving parables, for speaking in parables. First thing we need to understand is his disciples, those who followed him humbly and earnestly, they were not spoken to in parables. They were given full access to Jesus. But the others were spoken to in parables. Now, this passage that Jesus quotes right here is from Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. And we'll go ahead and look at that, Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. Again, we have a passage from Isaiah that Jesus is quoting. Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. Okay, so this is right after we have Isaiah in chapter 6 doing the whole holy, 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 and woe is me. The coal touches his lips, his guilt is taken away, sin atoned for. In verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, this is Isaiah, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull, and their eyes heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Okay, so this passage is a little kind of confusing. But really what Jesus, what the Lord is commissioning Isaiah to do is speak the words of God, but have the understanding that they're not going to listen to you. They will ignore you. And because of the posture of the people's hearts, it will harden their hearts. This is a group of people who have depended on their own self-righteousness, just like the people of Israel in Jesus' day. The difference, however, is they want to do it without God. They just want to exist without God. The people in Isaiah's day, they worshipped the Baals. They worshipped other gods. They, they wanted to do it on their own, just like the golden calf in the Exodus. We have the opposite effect happening in, in Jesus' day. So in, uh, in the time of Israel... So in the time of Israel, you had um, lawlessness. 
or ancient Israel. You had lawlessness where they worshiped the Baals, where they um, and idols. They chased after foreign things like uh, foreign wives. Uh, the, the term used frequently in the Old Testament is why can't we be like the nations around us? So this is what God punishes in, with the uh, exiles. He punishes their lawlessness. They ignore God. Now, in the New Testament era, we have the opposite. They are uh, lawful. They only worship God. And they exclude. And they... um, Yeah, that's kind of the big three. But their lawfulness... It's to the point of exclusion. And their worship of God is to the point of missing who God is. So if you had a pendulum here, in the time of the exile, they were over here. And God wants them to be right here. And instead, they move all the way to the other side of the pendulum. Okay, so that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, look, you guys are doing the exact same thing. It's just on the other side. Um. And ultimately what they've done is they have tarnished the law of God. The law of God is pure. It is righteous. It is good. That's what we see all throughout the Psalms of David. The law is a beautiful, a cleansing, a healing thing. It's the posture towards the law that turns it into something ugly, just like our posture towards anything does that. So God wants, Jesus is correcting this posture He wants to show them that instead of focusing on the law, you need to focus on the the people that God has given to you. We um, discussed, it was kind of a revelation, I think, in our Sunday morning class. We discussed this idea of obeying the law of God. And the people of Israel thought they were obeying God's laws, but they missed the crucial point. So the main two laws of God, and all of the commandments can be summed up in them, are what? Love God, love thy neighbor. Now then, who is your neighbor? And this was the point that I made Sunday, and I think it's correct, (laughs) but... um, Bosco, are you my neighbor? No. No. What are you? You're my brother. You're my family member. Now, in our world, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to us because, I mean, our family units are five people who live in a house and then five people who live in a house. But in the ancient world, like we've talked about, the family unit is massive. It's huge. It's all-encompassing. So, love God, this is loving the family of God. Loving your neighbor is loving those on the outside. And we see that illustrated very well in the parables of Jesus. 
Loving your neighbor means loving those who are your enemies. And I'm not just talking like, I want to kill you enemies, but your enemies, you know, that are against your way of life. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Israel failed miserably in this aspect. And they failed in this aspect, too, because they weren't even loving their own brethren. We see that very clearly in Mark with the man who needed to be healed, who they weren't interested in him being healed on the Sabbath day because the Sabbath was more important. Jesus is making it very clear that this is all of what they're required to do. Love each other and love those on the outside. Israel failed, and in the case of the Old Testament Israel, they weren't loving God, they weren't loving the law of God, they weren't loving their family, they weren't doing anything right. And in the New Testament form of Israel, they were doing the same thing. They weren't loving people, they weren't loving God, and they hated their neighbors. They hated those on the outside. So, Jesus is speaking against these principles, and through these parables, he's hardening their hearts. That's what this passage in Isaiah is basically saying. The message of Jesus is going to harden the hearts of those who are against this, who want to hold to their own ideas and ideologies, which is exactly what the parables did. They hardened the hearts of those who wanted to stick to their own stuff, and they softened the hearts of those who were interested in moving into forward with Jesus. So Jesus is very surprised when he says to his followers, and he said to them, do you not understand the parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Jesus is kind of frustrated here and gets sarcastic. Oh, the other point I need to make is that with this Isaiah passage here, he is warning the people of Israel. He's saying, look, if Israel does not get this right, they are headed for the same thing that happened before. They are headed for destruction, which is what happens after, shortly after Jesus leaves the scene. Destruction comes to Israel again. I, I can, I'm not going to guarantee it, but if the people of Israel would have accepted Jesus completely, they probably wouldn't have had the destruction that happened in 70 to 100 A.D. So, this is a prophetic warning. Now, now we're going to get into Jesus' own interpretation of the parable. The sower sows the word. Notice he doesn't say God is the sower. He says the sower sows the word. So this is referring to anyone. This is not just referring to God. This is just referring to anyone. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. What does that mean? The ones along the path. That's right. Everyday people you run into. This is not... Yeah, that's exactly right. People you're just going to rub shoulders with. These aren't people who are actively seeking. These aren't people you're preaching to. 
This is just people you, your life testimony is going to impact. Okay? When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. This is easy pickings for Satan, ultimately is what Jesus is saying. Um, and don't, what? Um, because the, the soil hasn't been prepared. So this is just easy. Satan's going to, these are the people Satan's looking for to get rid of the gospel. So your, you know, how many of us have tried to talk about the gospel and they're just not interested, you know, and it's like, yeah, eh, whatever, I just, I'll just go about my business. Yeah, yeah, these are people, right. Exactly. These are exactly. These are people who are not really interested. And ultimately, what Jesus is saying with this, and this is hard to hear, but he's saying, "Don't worry about this crop." Okay, he's saying, "Don't worry about this." Satan, it's easy pickings. Let's move on to the next category. Is he's saying there? Satan just immediately comes, takes away the word that is sown in them. While he is concerned with these people, more work needs to be done in their lives. Ultimately is, ultimately is what Jesus is saying. More work has to be done to till up the ground. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And more work had to be done. Yep. You had to get to the point of good soil. Yeah. Well, and how does good soil, how do you make good soil? Yeah, that's what, well, and how does good soil happen? How do you, yeah, you have to grind it up. It takes a lot of work. What? Yeah, it, you, it's, it takes a lot of work, though, to get the soil ready. Rocks have to be pulled out. It's, there's a lot of work that is involved with getting soil prepared. So, ultimately, yeah, these... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, no, that's right. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. It's indoctrination. It's not even love. <laughs> yep. No, that's right. That's Yeah. <coughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which the story of Daniel and those three is particularly interesting. And I'm not saying this is the promise of every believer because we just know this isn't reality. But um, because we're promised tribulations more than anything else. But with Daniel especially, where he did not compromise there, he was elevated to the position where he could have anything he wanted. And he, he probably did. You know, he, he, he didn't have to say, oh, no, that's food's been sacrificed to idols. He could have just said, no, get me the fresh stuff. And he would have been fine. Um, and so there's, a, there's a, a lesson there that you let God do the work and it will, it may not be accomplished in our lifetime, <laughs> but it, it will be accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and it was, it was. No, no, it was, but it was offered to idols, which is explicitly condemned in the Mosaic laws, um, which that makes sense to us. That's not even like some of the kosher laws are like, well, why can't I have a cheeseburger? You know, but that one's like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Food offered to idols, that's not something I should be partaking in. So. Yeah, and then the second form, second seed, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. Now, this is not ground that is unaccepting. This is people who want to hear the word. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So this seed sown in rocky ground. Again, this soil has not been prepared. They're genuinely interested, but the seed's never able to take root. There's never any, I don't want to use the word follow-up because that's kind of cliche, but there's no um, development of the root. It just, when the tribulations come, the sun comes out, that's what the parable actually says, they wither away. They just die. There's not any long-term effects here. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. You know, in this, I can't confidently say because <clears throat> there's no discussion of who's tilling the ground here. This is just, he's just talking about the seeds being thrown, which that's the hard thing with parables. Parables don't always give you the full picture. They give you a piece of the picture. And this piece is he's talking about the types of hearers, not necessarily the responsibility of the farmer to till the ground or anything like that. Um, we could assume, based on the context of the hardness of the hearts, that these are people who have hardened hearts. Um, people who have, there's too much in their heart for the root to get in. Yeah, too many, too many boulders to get in, um, which we do see that quite a bit. I think that's, that's an experience we've had with a lot of people. The word is something that's exciting, but it's there, there's, you know, as soon as you get to a point in their life where, where you say, okay, you have to deal with this issue now, oh, no, I'm, I'm good, and then they fall away, um, which I think that's more the, the type of people that he's talking about here, not, not people who have, you know, they're excited about the word, but they don't want the stuff that comes with it, you know. Third. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. All right, so this is an interesting one. Notice that this plant does not die. This plant doesn't die. This plant is unfruitful. It doesn't produce fruit which the nutrients that the plant would receive to produce fruit are being stolen by the thorns. This is like what Alfonso said just a second ago. This is the type that the things and cares of the world get in the way of Christian growth. They're fruitless. They look like they belong, but there's nothing to show for it. And this is probably the majority of the church in America today, unfortunately. They look like church, they go to church, they have the label of church, but they don't have any fruit to back it up, right? There's nothing substantial going on there. This is the problem, I believe, with um, so the megachurch life, because there's nothing that can... There's no responsibility to till up the soil in uh, when you're sitting one amongst 5,000 or 1,000 even. You, know, you don't have a pastor who understands. It's like I think you, you said on Sunday, or yeah, Alfonso, you said where you, you know, if you walk into Walmart, you're going to run into somebody from our church and they're going to say, hey, I missed you Sunday. You're not going to get that in a megachurch setting. You, you, just, you just don't get that. Um, which it's not, it's just, there's no true community there. It's just, you're better off listening to podcasts, ultimately. So that's, that's kind of, unfortunately, the majority of Christians today, I think, is they are this, they look like Christians, but there's nothing to show for it. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, desires for other things, things pulling away the nutrients of the word. 
choke the word. That's what he says there. It chokes out the word. The power of the word to transform us is gone. And we have the fourth. But those that were sown on the good soil, and again, good soil is not something that comes naturally. Good soil doesn't exist naturally anywhere. It has to be worked and tilled. We know this because what was the curse of Adam? The ground will become hard and you must work it. Good soil must be worked. It is something that is produced by a laborer. So that tells you what type of people these are. These are people who God has been working on or somebody has been working on. They hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. The miraculous blessings of God in these people's lives. This soil has been prepared, weeded, and most importantly, it has been softened. Repentance has happened, humility is present, and there is a softness of heart. This is in stark contrast to the other three types of soil which have not been prepared. So, this parable not only describes the people that are hearing Jesus' message, but um, the universal truth of all those who will hear and have heard the gospel, past, present, and future. There is, this is universal. This goes on today. This isn't something that was just back then. This is something we can understand today. Furthermore, it should be very obvious to the hearers which type of soil they are. Again, this is that litmus test for ourselves to see where we're at. Because the evidence is there, whether you have fruit, no fruit, or you've withered and died spiritually. If you're not bearing fruit, then you are clearly not the good soil, and God has to do more work on you. Now, it's an interesting concept, this concept of sowing and reaping. If we take it a little farther than maybe we should, but just an interesting thought, um, this isn't the end all, right? There's only, there's multiple seasons in our lifetimes that we can be worked upon. And I think that is a truth that needs to be understood. This isn't, once you've, the seed has been snatched up from your dry path of a life, that's not the end for you. God continues to try to work on you. And I think that's important here. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I think that Jesus explains that, that very clearly. Okay, and then Jesus begins to talk about kind of, that's why this isn't really a parable. This is more about why, what's going on with his teaching. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret expect to come except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, so this is just simply a common sense thing. That's why this isn't really a parable, but it kind of is. So if you bring a lamp into a room, what do you expect to do? Light up the room. That's what Jesus is saying here. Like, you don't bring a lamp into the room expecting to make it more dark. You bring a lamp into a room to light up the room. <clears throat> which is Jesus is saying, I'm here to reveal things about your life. Like, this is going, my teachings are going to reveal things in your life that you don't necessarily want to see or hear, 
But that's what's going to happen. And the parables do that. They bring revelation to people's lives. Either hardening their hearts or bringing softness. The kingdom of God, through Jesus' teaching, is going to reveal the hearts of men. Then Jesus does something interesting. He talks about this idea of measures. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is a classic verse that, taken out of context, makes the Bible sound really terrible. Right? One who has not, even what he has will be taken away. When looked at in the context, we see that this is referring to the idea of the hardening of the hearts and the softness of the hearts. If you are going, if you have the measure, if you have what that having is, is the blessings of God and His measure. Okay, Who's, Somebody's doing the measuring here. This isn't our own stuff. Somebody is measuring things out to you. Okay, So this is God's offering, blessing, um, power, Holy Spirit, all those things. This is God's measure to you. This is very similar to the other parable where we have the parable of the talents. All right? So we have the measures that has been given to you. And if you use your measure, more will be given to you. That's all Jesus is saying. But to the one who has not, this is somebody who refuses the measures of God, who wants to rely on their own power and ability strength, righteousness, etc. That's what God, he's saying here. This isn't, talk, this isn't a discussion of poor versus not poor, or faith versus faithless. This is somebody who's going to rely on themselves versus somebody who's going to rely on the power God gives them. Simply. It will be taken away. Second parable. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises, not, rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Okay, so this idea here this is a simple parable. Yeah, very profound. Jesus is essentially telling the people that this message that he's saying cannot be affected by outside forces. God's work goes and does God's work on its own. Now, it's interesting. He uses the term, um, he knows not how. All right. That's a faith term. It's understanding that you know that when you do this, something happens regardless of whether you know the reasons behind it. And even in science today, the, the miracle of life is something we still do not fully understand, which that's what this is, the miracle of life. It's just on a smaller scale than humanity or animal life. God wills it to happen, and that is how it will happen. God has set the processes in place, and that's going, nothing can impede it. 
Those who try to influence the growth of the kingdom for their own purposes are doomed to fail. That's ultimately what Jesus is saying. If you try to guide the kingdom how you want, it's bound to fail. The kingdom of God grows at its own pace. It will grow slowly but surely, and the harvest will be glorious when it comes to fruition. That's what is being taught here. We do not want to do it in our own way. Again, thinking about that idea of it being our own humility and dependence and faith versus our own self-righteousness and doing it our way. That's what Jesus is communicating, I think, here. And then he said, with what, this is the third parable, with what can compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make its nests in the shade. So again, this is the seed. The seed is not the word here. The seed is the kingdom itself, or Jesus himself. There's lots of comparisons. The seed, you know, Jesus come, came from humble means, and the, it's starting small, you know, even starting small with a group of just 12 disciples. Yet it grows and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches. That idea of putting large branches so that the birds of the air can make their nests in its shade is an Old Testament reference to the nations of the earth finding rest in Israel. Okay, rest in Israel. So he's, this is a prophetic parable, a prophetic fulfillment. He's saying that the kingdom of God has come and this is what's happening and the nations will find their rest in Israel in the kingdom of God. It is small and unexpected. That's probably the... the uh, the idea here, the idea of unexpectedness. Which falls in line with what Jesus has been teaching thus far. This is something new and unique and unexpected, the kingdom of God. Any more thoughts on the parables? Exactly. That's right. That's exactly right. It's, and it's interesting, he doesn't use, like, an oak tree or something. He uses just a gar... And, and when you look at a mustard seed, the plant that it produces, it's a big plant, but it's still just a little bush. It's not an olive tree. It's not something huge. It's just still a bush, <laughs> right? And so that's kind of... It's, it's still unexpected, even the analogy he uses, So, um, we have the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the seed growing. Um, I forgot one point in the parable of the seed growing. Or, yeah, the, the seed growing with the man who doesn't understand it. But it, So, this, the, the one extra point on this parable is that the man expects fruit to be born. He expects fruit. If the fruit does not come, and there's another parable that's going to talk about this, then it's worthless, and that's because it's not producing anything. 
And this falls in line with some of the other things that Jesus talks about later with the fig tree not producing fruit. It's worth it. You might as well cut it out, throw it away. It's not worth anything. Yep. That concept is going to be play out very much so as we continue on. Okay, verse 33. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Okay, so this is interesting, but I think it's really just to set up the next piece of narrative. He explained everything to his disciples. Like I said, it's going to make the next piece of narrative very interesting. He spoke to everyone else in parables. All the people around him. And as we continue... That's what we see. We see parables being spoken. So every time you see in-depth teachings, you can understand that it is a private conversation between him and his disciples. So his disciples have heard everything explained to them. Then we get this. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across the other side. And leaving the crowd... They took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they said, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Again, I think that piece of narrative, he explained everything, is setting this up. Because he's like, I've explained everything to you. Why are you still afraid? They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The point being that they should have known who he is if the wind and the sea obey him. All right, Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. He can do this because he is explained everything to them already. He's already communicated to them what and how they should look like, what they should act like, and who he is, ultimately. They should have known better. This is an encouraging note to us, because these disciples had full access to Jesus, and they still lost faith (laughs) and had doubts, which makes me feel really good when I have faith and doubts. Um, Jesus encourages them in their faith by commanding the waves and the storm to stop. And it does so immediately. So again, we have this discussion of Jesus' authority. He's had authority over demons. He's had authority over sickness, over sin and justification by being able to forgive people. And now he has authority over nature. Now this nature one is very interesting because in the Old Testament... I can think of at least a couple stories, one that's particularly interesting. To prove that God exists, they use nature. So Elijah goes to Ahab and says, I'm going to pray for rain and rain's going to come and that's going to show that God is the God of Israel. And Ahab says, fine, that's a great proof because rain hasn't come in three years. And what's he do? He goes and prays for rain and rain comes. So God's proof of existence and who he is is shown through his ability to control nature. He just controlled nature here. 
anyone who's paying attention, and that's why the disciples are marveling at this, because he's moved into something greater than even being able to speak to demons. Now he's controlling nature. Now he's actually showing God powers. This is private, though. This is just to his disciples. This is not a public setting like with the demons. This is private. This is just his disciples. They're the only ones who see it, and they're amazed. He is the master of all things. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's what they're, they're like, oh, okay, you're God. That's ultimately, that's why they say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the reason why is because the only person who can control the forces of nature is the person who created the forces of nature. God is the only one who has that power. And all throughout the Old Testament, that's how God's, one of the biggest ways God's power is displayed through controlling or exhibiting signs of power through nature. This is Jesus putting his God powers on display in full light. That's why when he says, have you still no faith, he's making it very clear that who he is, and he's already revealed to them who he is, and they should know who he is by now. He is God. He has the power of God. Nothing can stand in their way. Any questions? Yeah, there's, there's a lot I didn't catch until I started studying it. Yeah, there's, it's, that's why it's important to look at it as you go in the whole chunk of Mark, not just little parables, taking them as they are. You have to look at it in the context of what's going on to really get the full understanding of it. Okay, so with that, we will pray. We'll be finished tonight. Next week we'll get into chapter 5. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. I pray your spirit would go with us as we go throughout this week. Go before us. Guide our ways. In Jesus' name, amen.